Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Hey, Lake Point family. Today is a day I've been looking forward to for our church for about four months. I've been extremely excited about this. Now, let me give you a little backstory on what's about to happen. When I was first called to ministry at the age of about 16, my dad told me about this church in Louisville, Kentucky that was reaching tens of thousands of people for Jesus. And so at that age, I drove up to Southeast Christian Church, walked in, and the teaching pastor was a man named Dave Stone. And he preached a message that affected me so deeply that for the next four years when I was in college, I would walk up to my computer lab, download Dave Stone's sermons, and that's kind of like how I learned to preach and formed as a disciple in college. And so today, I am very excited. Would you, Lake Point Church, please put your hands together loudly and give a warm Lake Point welcome to an incredibly formative presence in my life and good friend of Lake Point Church, Pastor Dave Stone. Thank you. Wow, it is great to be here. It's an honor to be here at Lake Point, and thank you so much for this opportunity. Josh, those were very kind words. I, I, I deeply love you and appreciate you. Josh has an incredible gift of of preaching God's word, of visionary leadership. He has so many things. He's, he's modeled a great transition. Steve has done a great job a couple years ago passing things over to Josh. And uh, I just want you to know how honored I am to be here and how much we love Josh and, and Jana and, and now the church. We've met so many great folks here. Uh, when Josh and Pastor Josh invited me uh, about four months ago, he said, oh, man, you got to come in January. He said, in January in, in Louisville, Kentucky, I mean, man, it's 45 degrees out there. You come in January, you can play golf. It'll be 75 degrees. So, yeah, uh, so there's that. Uh, but this morning, he and I, we, we went ice fishing, and it was... It was a, a lot of fun, but I, I know that I am coming in here at just uh, an incredible time in the life of Lake Point, and I have loved these last two sermons uh, that have been in this series as you've been looking at some spiritual disciplines that are countercultural to what society teaches. And I want to share a phrase with you that, that I, I hope will stick with you. To get something no one else is getting, you have to do something that no one else is doing. And we're called to be different. We're called to be distinctive. And, and Peter says that we are a peculiar people, a chosen nation. And so you've been talking the last two weeks about prayer, and you've been talking uh, about worship and how we can really have this abundant life as we lean in on some of these spiritual disciplines. And I, I, I heard about the, the worship and prayer night on Wednesday night. And... Uh, so I, I realized that, that this is a different church on this Sunday than it was last Sunday. And that uh, there is just the, a fresh wind blowing, and it is the Spirit of God. And so if, if you're not on that, uh, riding that wind, 
uh, make certain you catch it because it's going to be an incredible ride. And I think that uh, the, the future in the past has been glorious. In the future, it's even brighter because I think the Spirit is, is moving in an incredible way. Today, we're going to focus on the Bible. And uh, Scripture is definitely needed in our time of opinion in which we find ourselves living. Now more than ever, we need to turn to Scripture. And when I was a kid, each summer, I would, I would go to church camp. And when I would go to church camp, every morning would start off the same way because what would happen is we would have the, the kids all go down by the flagpole and, and we would all start off by saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And then after that, we would say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. And then after that, whichever camper the dean had designated would come walking through all the other campers and walk up front and the little guy would take his Bible out and would open it up, and we would say, I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Its words will I hide in my heart that I might not sin against God. Now, those words <clears throat> that talk about the Bible, those words that begin by, by saying the Bible, God's holy word, is that really true? Or were the words that those fourth graders were reciting, was that the result of adults trying to push a child toward a ritualistic religion that had a lot of rigid restrictions? Or is it true? Is the Bible, is Scripture God's holy word? And today, popular opinion is in our society that, that says, well, don't OD on, on the Bible. I mean, after all, every religion has its book, correct? I mean, uh, the Muslims have the Koran, and, and then the Church of Latter-day Saints, they, they have the Book of Mormon. And Christians, they, they have their book too. They, they have the Bible. And so it doesn't really matter. It's whatever book you choose that's the one that's right for you because all religions are pretty much the same and your opinion is what matters because we live in a time in a world that doesn't want any moral absolutes and since such thinking is prevalent today what I want to do is I want to talk about why I believe that the Bible should be our ultimate source of authority and I want to talk about how it is that this is not just any other book and why it's different and why we should live by it. Reason number one, the Bible claims to be God's word. The Bible makes claims that are incredible. Over 400 times in the Old Testament alone, it says, thus saith the Lord. And that's quite a claim. You say, well, that's no biggie. People make false claims all the time. People say all the time things that aren't true. They'll fabricate and embellish anything to get attention. And all you got to do is just go to your local grocery and get in line, and as you stand there waiting to pay, you see those tabloid headlines. I jotted some down this week. I've never done this, but this is what's in the news, according to National Enquirer and Globe. Uh, here are four different headlines that I saw. Roach robots could save lives, all right? Bill Clinton desperately needs heart transplants. Hugh Hefner's dog hooked on cocaine. And then I love this one. Retailer, The Gap, announces Josh Howerton is skinny jeans model. I, you know, they were everywhere, right? You just don't know what's true and what isn't. You don't know what to, what to believe. And there's no repercussions if something isn't true. And so false claims are everywhere. But in 1400 BC, if you said that you were speaking on behalf of God, and something didn't come to pass and it didn't come true, in Deuteronomy 18, a person could stone you to death. 
And so when you claimed that you were speaking on behalf of God, that was putting your life on the line. And as Christians, we believe that the words contained in this book were directed and inspired by God. And yet he used ordinary people like us to write it down. Here's the key verse of the message. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now notice those four actions, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. That encompasses everything that makes up this life. Every painful story, every promising season, every powerless situation, every person sitting here or watching online has been given a God-breathed gift that has the power to move you toward a fulfilling life. And many of the strongest apologists for the Bible started out as agnostics or atheists who set out to disprove the Bible's claims, to set out to prove that it was not inspired by God. People like C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, but their diligent study caused their lives to go in the opposite direction because the more they studied, the more they believed that the Bible is true. Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you should have no problem believing anything else. I mean, if you can speak a solar system into existence, what's the big deal about making it rain for 40 days and 40 nights or or feeding 5,000 people with a, a boy's lunch or even someone coming back from the dead? I mean, if you can... Speak that solar system into place. If you can create man and woman in your own image, then his power is limitless. Maybe you heard about the seven-year-old girl who asked her mom, said, Mom, where did, where did people come from? How did all this start? And mom said, well, God created Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve had children, and then they had children, and that's how, how we came about. Well, a few hours later, a little girl went and asked her, her dad and said, Dad, where, where, where do you think that, that life really began and people began? He said, well, it's really pretty easy. He said, we, we kind of developed and evolved from monkeys and from apes. Now the girl was so confused, she went back to her mom and said, Mom, I don't understand. You said that God created us, and, and then Dad said that we came from, from monkeys and from apes. She said, oh, there's a simple explanation, hon. She said... I was telling you about my side of the family. <clears throat> uh, yeah, you know where. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't need to finish that, right? <clears throat> this book that claims to be God's word says that you are here for a purpose. You're not here by accident. The Bible says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Reason number two that I believe that the Bible is our source of authority. The Bible is verified by archaeology and history and science. When you read the Bible, it isn't about fictional places that you can't go to. There are, these are are historical places, and the findings continue to prove the accuracy of the Bible down to minute details. Archaeologists will often have a a Bible in one hand and a spade in the other because they, they use the two together because it's been so reliable. The Bible's accuracy is there. I could tell you all sorts of historical finds. All you have to do is just Google and and, and look for the most recent historical finds that validate God's word. 
Things like people saying, oh, there's no Sodom and Gomorrah because we've never been able to find any, anything that, that has anything to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, there's a good reason you can't find Sodom and Gomorrah. God obliterated it, right, and destroyed it. But a few years ago, they found merchant's records, and one of them had a delivery of a product that was taken to Sodom. People questioned for years whether or not uh, John was exaggerating in his gospel when he talked about there being five colonnades in one area or five porticos. And people said, well, he's kind of embellishing there. That's kind of overkill. But then they dug down 40 feet deep, and they began to find not one, two, three, four, but they found five colonnades, just as John wrote about. Dr. Nelson Gluck a Jewish archaeology expert confidently said, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. And the Bible states all sorts of historical facts, thousands of events, people, places, rulers, kings, rivers, mountains, cities, coins, on and on. For instance, the, the New Testament book of Acts alone, written by Luke, a physician, the book of Acts alone has references to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine different islands. And that's just in one book. You say, well, why would Luke go to all that trouble? Because they didn't have calendar systems back then. They, they didn't say A.D. and B.C. Instead, since Jesus had not been born, what they did was they went by when something had happened and who was ruling at that time. And so when Luke writes all those things, he is begging for historians to check things out. You check me on this. But it's not just history. Science also substantiates our faith. In Job chapter 26, verse 7, it says of God, he suspends the earth over nothing. Now think about that. Job is one of the oldest books in, in all of the Bible, and God has him write, he suspends the earth over nothing. At that time, everyone thought the earth was flat. How about in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22? It's describing God, and it says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, how in the world could Isaiah know in 700 B.C. that the earth was a circle unless God divinely inspired that observation? Some of the first astronomy experts calculated that, that there were 10,000, or there was 1,056 stars. They're very precise in their numbers. They said, We've got to figure it out there's 1,056 stars. And then they found out a century or two later, when telescopes were a little bit better, they came back and they said, No, there, there are around 10,000 stars in the universe. And then there was this invention called the, the Hubble telescope. And now the Hubble telescope has allowed us to think that there are around 50 billion galaxies. In fact, one report, the wording of it was so incredible. The wording said, we believe now that there are as many stars as there are grains of sand on all the sea. That's exactly what the Bible tells us. The third reason that I'm convinced that this is Scripture is the Bible has survived the test of time. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And remember, the Bible was not written with permanent markers on nice, clean paper. It wasn't some Word document that you save to a thumb drive. It was written on papyrus and animal skins with, with crude, primitive writing instruments. And yet we have more manuscript evidence for the Bible than for any other literary work in all of history. 
When you become a Christian, you do not have to check your brain at the door. The Bible gives us plenty of substantiation and verification. Let me show you a chart. It just shows you some of the other books that are are well-respected and that no one questions. For instance, the work of Plato, they, they were completed in, the works of Plato were completed in 350 B.C., and we have seven manuscripts in existence, with the earliest being 895 A.D. That's a 1,250-year gap from when it was written, but no one questions that. Aristotle wrote his poetics around 343 B.C., yet the earliest copy that we have is dated A.D. 1100. That's nearly a 1,400-year gap, and only five manuscripts are in existence. Caesar composed his history of the Gallic Wars between 58 B.C. and 50 B.C., and its manuscript authority rests upon nine or ten copies dating a thousand years after his death. But how does the New Testament manuscripts stack up against those respected works? We see it here on the chart. The abundance of material is almost embarrassing by contrast. Over 5,000 copies of New Testament manuscripts are in existence today, with some dating back to less than 100 years from Christ's life. God has given us ample evidence to validate his word. And people have tried to destroy God's word through the years. Roman Emperor Diocletian in AD 303 was persecuting the church. He wanted to destroy Christians. And he thought the way to destroy Christians was to destroy this book. And if you think about it, that's pretty smart thinking because he realized the power of the Bible. And so he had his soldiers go door to door And they confiscated any biblical scrolls, anything that was related to the Bible. But he didn't get them all. He threw this big bonfire, but but there was one that he didn't get. And you know what happened 10 years later? There was a man named Constantine who came along. He embraced Christianity. And one of Constantine's very first acts as emperor was to commission his scribes to write out 50 copies of the Bible at government expense. We live in a world where some people, they they hate this book. They pick on you because you're a Christian. They ridicule your belief in this Bible. So let's do a little bit of teaching on how to handle it when people criticize you because of your uninformed belief in some archaic book. When that happens, do you come back with harshness and hate? Do you systematically shout back an informed response debunking their statements Do you try to find some resources and invite them to do some some reading of the evidence that you've discovered? And your response might depend upon their spirit and their attitude. And if this has become a weekly attack in the break room or it's someone who lacks credibility, uh, sometimes you don't respond. Because rather than responding, you you just absorb it, knowing that the, the way you handle it could lead to deeper dialogue in the weeks and the months to come. I preach about six weekends a year at a, at a great church in Phoenix, Arizona, and I've been doing that for the past five years. And evidently, in, in each of my first few sermons that I preached there, I made some jokes about my home state of Kentucky, and I kind of poked fun with some of those stereotypical comments about us being hillbillies, and everybody in, enjoyed them, but one person... Uh, sent me an email, and it was a woman who attends that church, and, 
and, and she attends that church in Phoenix, and she said that she had moved to Arizona from Kentucky, and she wrote, Dear Pastor Dave, please don't tell those type of jokes anymore. You are making things more difficult for us because in Arizona, people already literally think that everyone back home in Kentucky is barefoot and toothless. And then she wrote, don't make it tougher on us than it is. And she was dead serious about it. Now, what do I do in a case like that? Do I just absorb that or do I respond to that? Do I worry over that? Do I take valuable time and sit down and write a letter? I'm so sorry that my exaggerated comments offended you. The intent of my self-deprecating humor was not to make your life more difficult. In the future, I will be more sensitive to the feelings of those who have moved from the more rural states out west. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with me. Please forgive me for stepping over the line. Now, do I take the time to write that out? Do I take 15 minutes of my time to carefully craft that response, or do I just let it go and move on? And I prayed about it, and, and I decided it just wasn't the best use of my time. And sometimes you don't respond, and you just absorb. And in this case, I, I didn't respond because it just wasn't worth it. Because if, if I wrote back and explained myself to that former Kentuckian, then she would have to find a friend who knows how to read, and it's just not worth it, right? It's just not worth all of that time. So what I'm saying is you have to choose your battles wisely and rest assured those battles will come if you believe in this book. And nowadays, much of our society is adversarial to faith or to God's word. The Bible is under attack. And instead of a ruthless emperor, it may be a godless school board. It might be a hypersensitive boss that is really worried about what people would say if people talked about their faith in the workplace. It might be a college professor with an agenda or, a, or, or, or someone who just wants to take shots at the Bible and faith. But I pray that you're a Christian who believes that this book is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And if you live by it, if you are a doer of the word, then even that coworker who criticizes and mocks the Bible, when they go through an unexpected tragedy, that same person may come to you in search of hope and some answers that can be found in that well-worn book on your desk. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Now, I love this next phrase. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And God preserved these pages for a purpose. It's not just for your inspiration or for your information. It's for your transformation. Here's the fourth reason. The Bible is my source of authority because the Bible fulfills prophecy. If you were to ask me what's the strongest evidence as to the veracity of the Bible, I would have to say in my mind it is prophecy. Look at this passage from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. We'll put it on a full screen. I want you to see the whole thing. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, 
But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, don't let that word prophecy throw you off. It's, it's a fancy word which means a, a divine prediction. It's, it's some prediction that's made prior to it, it coming to pass. I wish we had a lot of time just to look at some of these prophecies. Take some time today uh, and, and read Psalm 22. It's, it's, it's really cool because it's a good example of somebody predicting or prophesying something that will happen years later. King David, he writes these words in 1000 BC. And what he describes in Psalm 22 is everything that Jesus Christ went through on the cross. And it goes through in, in specific detail describing death by crucifixion. But here's the thing. Death did not become a form of, crucifixion did not become a form of death until hundreds of years later. And so God is describing what it is that his son is going to go through before crucifixion has even been invented. How could that be unless God divinely inspired those words? Mathematician Peter Stoner used to head up the mathematics department at Pasadena Community College, and he did an extensive study of probability and the odds of a person just accidentally coming along and fulfilling eight messianic prophecies. A messianic prophecy is a prophecy about the Messiah or about Jesus. And so he took eight prophecies about Jesus, and he said, what would the odds be of somebody coming along and fulfilling those? And so what he did was he figured out what the probability would be of a person being born in Bethlehem. So out of all the places you could be born in the population of Bethlehem, what are the odds that you would be born in Bethlehem? And then he, he found another one, that he would die by crucifixion. And so what are the odds that when a person dies that it will be because they were crucified? He came up with odds for that. He went through all of these different ones, uh, betrayed by a friend, uh, sold for 30 pieces of silver, and he came up with this number that the odds to fulfill those eight prophecies were 1 in 10 to 157 times. Power of 157 times. You say, okay, well, help me quantify that. I'm not real good at math, and I'm not either. So let me tell you how, how large that number would be, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. It would be like taking a silver dollar, and you mark one red X on that silver dollar. And then, 1 in 10 to the 157th power, those silver dollars, you could take all the silver dollars, and you could fill up the entire state, your state of Texas, the entire surface area, two feet deep with silver dollars. And then you say to somebody, hey, I want you to find that coin. Anywhere in all of Texas, and that person gets in the helicopter, and they're blindfolded, and then at some point, after hours of being in the helicopter, they say, okay, land it right here, and they get off the helicopter, and they reach down blindfolded, and they pull up one coin, and it's that coin with the red X on it. That's what the odds of one person coming along and accidentally fulfilling those prophecies. But there weren't eight prophecies. There were nearly 300 messianic prophecies. And God wanted to make certain that we understand that prophecy 
is one of the strongest proofs that we'll ever come across. Now, some skeptics would say, well, there's a simple explanation. Dave, thank you for that illustration. But there's a simple explanation. I know why it is that, that Jesus fulfilled all these different prophecies. It's because later on, after Jesus died, all his crazy followers, they got some of the Old Testament manuscripts. And what they started doing was they started filling in and adding those different lines. Well, let's say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, that's good. That's good. Let's say he's going to be uh, betrayed by a friend. Okay, yeah, yeah, let's write that in. And they added and inserted these things in. And I guess that makes sense. And you might have believed that since there was no manuscript evidence at that time from anything written in about Old Testament prophecies that we had a copy of prior to Christ's life. And so I guess you could make a case for that until 1947. A shepherd boy was in an area called Qumran, and he was passing the time, and he took a rock, he threw it as far as he could, as high as he could, and when it landed, all of a sudden, he heard it break pottery. And he went and checked it out, and he went and got his family, and his family came back, and they unearthed an entire library of Old Testament manuscripts called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They brought in historians, they brought in archaeologists, they studied the documents, they said these were written 300 years B.C. And when they unfurled all of those scrolls, all of those scriptures, they began looking for every one of the messianic prophecies. Born in Bethlehem, born to a virgin, betrayed by a friend, for 30 pieces of silver. And every single one of them was there written hundreds of years before Jesus ever arrived here. Let's look at one more reason why the Bible is our ultimate source of truth and authority, and that is the Bible is relevant, and it applies to your life today. It's relevant. When you take the time to read it, it ties in with your life. It can change you. A number of years ago, my wife, Beth, she was shopping in a clothing store, and she overheard a young woman saying to another gal, saying, you know what, I just need to find a church. I just need to find a church. Well, Beth's antenna went up, and she scooted over a little bit closer, acting like she was still looking at clothes. And, and she said, I couldn't help but overhear you say that you're, you're, you're looking for a church. Do you really mean that? She said, yes, I really am. And Beth said, I, I go to a, a great church. I'd love for you to come and visit sometime. They, they, they teach the Bible. And she invited her to our, our church, and they exchanged phone numbers. And the next day, Nancy called Beth up and she came to church with her, and it was awesome. She enjoyed it. She came back the next week. She came two more weekends, and then my wife said, you know what? I have a Bible study for ladies that meets at my house. She said, I don't teach it, but I host it, and we have all sorts of people who have never studied the Bible. Have you ever studied God's Word? She said, no, I never have. That's all new to me, and Beth said, I promise you, you'll feel comfortable. Just come to our ladies' Bible study, and Nancy started coming. And you know what happens when you start opening up God's word? Its specialty is changing us and bringing us face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And her husband, Jim, started coming with her to church. And after several weeks of him coming to church with her, one night after they'd been studying God's word, they, they called me up at home and they said, hey, could we meet you over at church? Would you, would you baptize us tonight? And I went over to church, and I had the privilege of baptizing them. The story doesn't end there because they kept staying in God's word, and they felt this call to go on the mission field. And a year and a half later, our church commissioned them and sent them out to be missionaries overseas. Why does something like that happen? It's because an observant woman introduces someone to God's word. 
to God's church. The good news is that, that because of that, there are countless numbers of people who will be saved through Jim and Nancy's influence. The, the bad news is, is that my wife feels like God has called her to minister in the malls. <laughs> yeah. That's well, easy for you to laugh, right? She came home the other day, and she had six shopping bags, and she was walking. I said, where have you been? She said, oh, out witnessing, you know. <laughs> but this book is powerful, and when you open it up and you begin to study it, if you're not in the habit of reading it regularly, let me encourage you to start your day by taking a few minutes to read God's Word. Whenever you read a book, it helps you to get to know the author better. This will help you to get to know God better. It'll help you get to know his character, his love, his expectations. Pastor Ashley Wooldridge, a good friend of mine, says, the greatest threat to your spiritual growth isn't an evil world. It's a distracted soul. And Satan will do anything he possibly can to distract you and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to read my Bible. Yeah, I'm going to read my Bible. And then all of a sudden, it just gets pushed to the background. And yet we have our Bible right there on our phone. And we look at all these other things all day long on it, but we don't have time to read God's Word. I'm just telling you, there's something wrong with that picture. If you have your smartphone, you probably have the version Bible app on there. You can customize any reading plan that you want. You can, you can do all sorts of different things. I just do a very simple thing on my own. You know what I do? I read two chapters a day. And I'm a really slow reader. And I don't read and retain real well. So you know what I do? So today I read John 21, because that's what I read yesterday. And I, I read Acts 1. That way I get to read that same one that I read yesterday another time, just so that it can kind of get, get in me a little bit better. And then tomorrow I'm going to read Acts 2, and I'm going to read Acts 1 again. You find out whatever works best for you. There are life groups on every single campus. And a life group allows you to study God's word. And when you do that, it provides fuel for you throughout the day. For your Bible reading, have a time, have a place, have a plan. Pastor Josh spoke two weeks ago talking about uh, with prayer, and he said, have a holy place and a holy habit. That's what we need to do. The Bible is not a, a one, one book. It's 66 books in one. It was written across three continents. It was written over a span of 1,500 years. It was written by 40 different authors, the majority of whom did not live in the same place or even in the same time period. And yet there is one unwavering, consistent thread throughout all of the Bible, and it's this, that God and man are being reconciled through the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, the Old Testament screams, Jesus is coming. The Gospels in the New Testament say, Jesus is here. And the rest of the New Testament says, Jesus is coming again. You better be ready. And that's what we hold on to. Can you imagine 40 people today and telling them, all 40 of them to write on a controversial subject such as God or religion or politics or having them write about vaccines or masks. If you did that, do you think there would be any consistent thread among 40 of them? No way. That alone should motivate you to pick up God's word. But here's my fear today. 
My fear is that, that Satan is going to whisper in your ear and Satan's going to say, you know what? You can't do all this. I mean, Pastor Josh talked two weeks ago about praying all the time. And then last week, we got to get more into our worship. And then this hillbilly comes in today and he says, you're supposed to be reading your Bible all the time. What a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. But here's what you got to understand. This will breathe life into you. It will transform you. It will change you. What have you got to lose? Worshiping God for who he is. And as for this book, I don't know. I don't want you to read it out of duty. I want you to read it out of devotion. I don't want you to think, oh, he's suggesting another obligation to put on my to-do list. No, I'm telling you that God says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And this book is great medicine. And if you're going through a rough time, if this last 18 months have just eaten you alive, I'm telling you, this could be what you need. Think of it like this. What a vault is to a bank, the Bible is to our faith. Because contained within these pages can be found unsearchable riches and valuable treasures that open the door to forgiveness and deep joy and abundant life. And this book has changed my life for the better, and I promise you it can change yours. And I'm so thankful and grateful that I had godly parents who raised me to value the pages of this book more than any other book. And they modeled consistently, not just reading it, but, but putting it into practice. When I was about to turn six, six years of age, our family was returning home from vacation. It was pouring down rain. We were on a two-lane highway. And as the oncoming car maneuvered around the curve, the back end of it, hydro, the car hydroplane, the back end began to fishtail. And the other driver, he corrected it, and he's got it straightened out, but he got it straightened out as he was in our lane. And so both cars going over 50 miles per hour, we had a head-on collision. Miraculously, my brother and I were okay. In the back seat, my, my mom was bleeding out from a life-threatening skull fracture. She would spend the next week in an intensive care unit with a 50-50 chance of surviving, and and she never, throughout the rest of her life, ever regained any hearing in her left ear. My father's face had struck the steering wheel. His glasses shattered. Later that day, an eye surgeon removed 21 shards of glass from my, my dad's eyes. But as long as I live, I will never forget sitting in that car, out in that field, and wondering if my mom was going to make it. And dad checked on everybody, and he was in shock. He couldn't see. My mom's bleeding in the back. We sat in silence, and soon we heard the sound in the distance of sirens, and that's when Dad broke the silence, and in a quivering voice, he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And he began to quote through the entire 23rd Psalm, and the rain kept falling, and as the wail of the ambulances approached and got louder, Dad's words just kept on coming. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It's still one of my most vivid memories of my childhood. This was no foxhole prayer. This was no panicked appeal in a time of crisis. This was my dad's default setting. 
quoting scripture was natural and normal for him. Whether in the valley or whether on the mountaintop, he instinctively ran to scripture because my father knew that the Bible offered words of comfort and truth and hope, and it still does. Let me ask you something. When the sirens of life begin to sound, you or your loved ones find yourselves in your most frightening moment of your life, what will you cling to? What will you quote? Will it be popular opinion? Will it be the most popular tweet from the most famous person from the past week? Will it be a tabloid headline? What will you cling to? Or will it be God's word, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path? Its words will I hide in my heart that I will not sin against God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we... Uh, we come to you today and we admit to you and we confess to you that there are times when, when we don't read the love letter that you've provided us with and we, we don't give you the time of day that you deserve. So Lord, afresh, we say to you that we're, we're gonna turn our lives over to you and we're gonna wrap ourselves up in this word and we're gonna allow your spirit to speak to us. And Lord, I know there are some people that, that say they don't believe the Bible and it's an easy thing to say, and the reason they say it is because they realize that if they said they believed the Bible, <laughs> then they'd have to change their ways, and they'd have to change their behavior because believing the Bible would demand that. Lord, would you help them to see that your way is a difficult way, but it's the most freeing way. It leads to the abundant life. It gives us the joy that we need. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he became the physical representation of your written word. May we follow in his steps. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. digital.